Matthew chapter 6 again. There's a little ringing. Do you hear ringing out there? Yeah. I guess I'm just a dingling. Anyway, you try to ignore it. Maybe I will too. Is that any better? Yeah. Good. Matthew 6. Um, you have a Bible or a computer version of one, uh, you can check that out and follow along with us. Let's look to the Lord. Father, I pray this morning that you will enter into our hearts. Uh, may we deal honestly and openly with you. And Lord, as we talk about anger, bitterness, unforgiveness, Lord, I don't think there's any of us that are exempt Lord, often our heart is not the way it should be to those around us. And Lord, I pray that you'll help us this morning to, in a new, fresh way perhaps, or to cement what we've already known about the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. May we see that forgiveness so bold, so wonderful, that it permeates the way we look at others, that the grace that we have received from you becomes the same grace we want to reflect in those accounts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've been looking at the Lord's Prayer, uh, the model prayer, the disciples' prayer, uh, by many different names, and looking at the different aspects of it, not as a prayer in and of itself uh, that I am just supposed to say, but as a guide, as a uh, different steps to lead us into and I would dare say, if you've known the Lord for many years, your prayer life is very different than when you first came to know Jesus Christ. I've talked to many new believers, like, I don't know how to pray. What do I say? Is there, is there a right way? Is there a wrong way? Uh, and as God guides you in that, uh, you find that prayer becomes more of a time where you converse with God, where you pray and empty your heart, and, and He can help and that prayer becomes a vitally important part of us as long as we haven't lost that first love, as long as we haven't become so self-dependent that we don't think we need it. When we know the grace that we needed when we came to know Jesus Christ is the same grace that we need every single day uh, that we live, prayer becomes a normal part of us, just like any person that you love. Uh, if you didn't speak to them for a month, they might begin to think there's a problem, that there's something wrong in that relationship. And so it is with prayer. When we seek and know God and love Him, prayer is something that becomes natural, something that becomes so important to us. So we've looked at many different phrases and thoughts uh, of this. Uh, it begins with our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and what we began last week, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And we concentrated last time mostly on the forgiveness and the grandeur and wonder of the grace that God has given us. And we looked at three big words. Uh, propitiation, imputation, and justification, and tried to give them fairly simple definitions that we could understand 
how great and wonderful a thing that God has accomplished on our behalf in saving us through his son. Uh, it has the idea that God's holiness needs to be satisfied. In order to be in relationship with him, you need to be like him. You need to have holiness the way that he does. And, but the problem is, and we looked at the imputation word, and that one's charging to someone's account, is that Adam's sin was charged to all of our accounts. So that explains why the world that you woke up in this morning isn't full of love and wonder. It explains the evil that we see. It explains why you get angry because there's things in this world that cause anger, that cause people, that um, have betrayal as part of that. Mistrust, broken relationships because of sin. But Jesus Christ coming to justify us or to put us back in that righteous position took our sins to his account, charged them to him. So when a person comes to Jesus Christ to become a Christian, what they do is acknowledge that the sin that they have in their heart from Adam, their actions, their nature that is always going the wrong way, they acknowledge that they can't do anything to be holy before the Lord again. They can't atone or forgive their sins on their own. It's not works. It's not being good. It's not promising God that you'll never sin again because even if you could, it's all the sins you've already done. Separate us. So when we believe that Jesus died on the cross as our substitute, he is the one who took our sins to his account. But it just didn't stop there because that didn't leave us righteous. It didn't leave us a, a place to be able to stand before the Lord. So Jesus gives us the very righteousness of God charged to our account. A very unfair exchange, but one that's graceful. One that any of us, that, that any confidence of heaven rejoices in. Because that is why we can stand before a holy God. So in that, we kind of did a little bit at the end, but we're going to pick up on that this morning. That in that great forgiveness, that forgiveness is reflective in a way of the grace that I should extend in the relationships around me. The way that I should forgive others. And the word forgiveness, it means to send away, dismiss, wipe off. It's the burying of the proverbial hatchet. And I've heard it said before that some people, they bury the hatchet, but they leave the handle sticking up for easy access so that they can get it again. It's, and have you ever had anyone bring up to you something that you thought was a done deal? Um, do you remember when? And, and it's done and everything's good. A year later, something comes up similarly and all of a sudden, boom, forgiveness becomes a battle. Just wait a minute, didn't we deal with this? Well, yes, but you see, there's a part of us that even though we extend forgiveness at times, find we battle to keep that forgiveness. I thank the Lord that he's not like that. That he's like, you know, I forgave you today, but you've done the similar thing again, so I'm taking it back. Yeah, you just can't have it anymore. You're not worth it. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's not that kind of a thing. The forgiveness of God is complete. It's an it's eternal forgiveness. So as we reflect that the goal for us is to extend that forgiveness and, and win the battle to let it stay forgiven. To keep a heart and attitude pointed in the right direction. 
It's, it's a forgiveness as we also have forgiven our debtors. So the, the point here is it's a past tense. So if I've sinned against the Lord, I know my sins are forgiven, but as in any relationship, when I do something against the other person, there's a wall there. So when we confess our sins to the Lord, we come to get rid of the wall. The penalty of sin is gone, but, but in practice, when you violate a relationship in the terms of that, you need to get it right. So when we come to him and say, Lord, can you forgive me? For this, it is forgiven, but you're acknowledging and repenting to get yourself back on the same track again. When you do that, according to the Lord's Prayer, we should have already, it's an assumed condition that I have forgiven and given grace because I'm asking for grace. I'm coming back to God, acknowledging my sin, so it's a, should be a no-brainer that I don't have anything in my background over here, any relationship that's tainted with lack of grace. Because how should I expect God, who I have sinned against, to, to, to take me seriously if I can't even in a human way reflect the grace that he has shown me? That's why this verse is here, 14 and 15, qualify. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. You're not earning it. You're not earning forgiveness by forgiving. You're showing the earnestness and the sincerity of your confession to God by the fact that you've extended grace to others as well. So we want to look this morning as this the second part of that, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Anybody get angry this week at anyone? You may be in it right now. You may look at a person, and I know we're a church, and we're all holy, and we're all perfect. But I know people, they told me, you know, when I come into church, I sit on this side. Because they sit on that side. And, and, and I, I'm good as long as I don't have to look at them. As long as I don't talk to them. Forgiveness, harmony, peace. And I want to begin this whole discussion about forgiveness by looking at the created order or how God intended everything to be. Harmony, peace, and shalom. Shalom is that word which means everything in your heart is just the way it's supposed to be. And as you look at the world, you have a feeling of peace that it's okay, that God is in control, he's got everything, and it just means that everything's in harmony. That is how you are created to feel and to enjoy. The garden was a place of peace. It was a place of shalom. Everybody got along. Adam and Eve got along without sin. They didn't even have any, there was no way, they couldn't even talk about past dating relationships. Because there were none. It was just them. You know, I didn't bring anything up of the past. It was not an issue. Everything was in harmony. We read in Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and every other living thing that moves on the earth. 
And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Harmony, relationships, everything as it should be. Hopefully it doesn't sound too trivial to say that life in the garden had the perfect boss with the perfect job, with the perfect paycheck, and the perfect relationships with each other and even all of animal kind. Now, I love animals. But there are times I get mad at some of my animals. I don't always have harmony between man and animal. I don't have harmony between man and man. You see, what has crept in is sin. Sin has broken that. And as relationships get broken, the desire is to restore the shalom. Get back to the place of peace. Because you know in your anger or in your resentment or bitterness towards an individual, it, it eats at you. It's like a cancer on the inside. You don't really have joy. You really don't have peace because as long as this is unsettled, as long as I'm at odds with them, there is, there is hurt inside, there is anger, there is tension, there is anything but joy, peace, and shalom. So what we want to do in forgiveness is think about restoring the created order. How do I get my heart in this world back to a place of peace and harmony even though what's out there might not be able to be fixed? What if the person that needs forgiving isn't even working on this earth anymore? Or what if they've not repented and given the same opportunity, they would do the same thing again? How do I get peace and harmony in my relationship to them? How can I deal with that? And that's what we want to look at from God's word this morning. You have many scripture references noted in your notes, and I really want to encourage you to read through those verses because they really give you the idea that the whole trajectory of the Bible is to get peace and harmony with God so that we can have peace and harmony with each other. And the story of the scripture is how God accomplished that, how he did it through his sacrifice and through his grace. But as I read through some of these, these verses quickly this morning, I, I want you to look at the phrases and get the flavor of the kind of life God has for us. Romans, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Finally, my brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace. Romans, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. There is no doubt God wants to restore peace and harmony 
to hearts that have had it ripped away through bitterness, anger, resentment, and all the things that are like that. So as we go down this path this morning, we need to look a little bit at the different bases of anger and begin to understand what anger is. Uh, you all have different ways of expressing anger. The obvious one, and the one that comes to mind most often, is the yeller. The person who gets red-faced. The person who starts to shake, they get so angry. Now, I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands to see if that's you or not. We, you know that person. It's like, oh my goodness, I'm a block from home, and I know they're not happy already. You hear the angry outburst. But on the same token, you may know somebody who their silence scares you. You know they're not happy. And then that power that they have comes through silence. So some it's corked up, it's couched in a calm spirit or a critical spirit. They, they don't fly off the handle, but that doesn't mean that anger isn't there. That doesn't mean that bitterness isn't there. They're just a different personality. They just don't blow up like a volcano. They're like a tremor under the ground. They're just angry in a whole different way. Some are sullen and silent. Others explode with red face, screaming. In either case, anger is something we need to understand. Because anger that is let go in bitterness and unforgiveness puts you in a prison that you do not have a key to get out. It puts you in a place where you are locked up, powerless to live a life of joy, peace, and shalom. So as we look at the faces of anger, one thing is that it is universal. Sometimes I'll preach a sermon and you might say, well, that doesn't really apply to me. Guess what? This applies to you. There isn't any of us who don't struggle with anger. James 1.19 says, know this, my beloved brothers, that every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. How many people say every person? There's nobody escaping this. That every person has to get anger uh, under control. Has to do it in a way that honors God. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That anger that usually just kind of springs up when I don't get control or something happens against my agenda, that anger is usually sinful anger. It's an anger that is not what God wanted. And, and sometimes we think, well, they deserve for me to get angry at them because of what they did. They needed a piece of my mind. Usually that's not the case. You need all the pieces you can get. But people feel like it's a strength sometimes to spout out and tell them exactly what I think. And boom, you know what I said, and I blew them out of the water like it was some good thing and some wonderful thing. Peace, shalom, forgiveness. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Universal. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down upon your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So we kind of see the picture widening here. That in my anger that I don't deal with right away and, and I let it fester, the devil has gotten an opportunity. 
opportunity. The devil comes to steal, kill, and to destroy. When he gets a foothold, because of unrepentant anger, resentment, unforgiveness, he gets in there and he does his job to you. He steals, he destroys, he kills, he sucks the very life out of us. And that bitterness becomes a prison and inside we begin to crumble. And we become cynical and unhappy and no matter what good thing happens, it's tainted by a heart that is in prison. Be angry and do not stay. Some things are supposed to make us angry. They are. They are things in a righteous anger. And that's what God has. And as we look at the anger of God, it says, the scriptures tell us God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Not all anger is sin. But for most of us, 99.9% of our anger is not the righteousness of God. It's not the righteous anger. So I just want to take a moment quickly and give a few characteristics of when anger is not a bad thing. If God feels it every day, then it can't be unrighteous. But to understand his anger gives us at least a little bit of a template to put my anger against it and see how it stacks up. So in the anger of God, it is righteous anger, and by word order, it's a byproduct of righteousness. God is not an angry God who tries to do it righteously. He is righteous. And when that righteousness is violated, when that peace and shalom is ripped away from the world he created because of sin, there is anger that springs from his righteousness. You see, righteousness in God is, is righteous anger. It's a God-centered kind of anger. Where his creation is taken and violated and made wrong, he is angry. He is angry about that. God is angry at the perversion of his goodness, the turning of wrong into what is made right. And as you look at those scriptures on your own, when, when his creation not only does evil, they call what is good evil, and they clap the hands for the people who follow the path of evil. They applaud that. That creates anger. But God's anger, and this is where it really differentiates uh, from our anger, his anger is governed and directed by love. I am righteously angry, angry when I see the things that have perverted the righteousness of God and have an angry feeling about them that is directed and governed by love. Most times, our anger wants to punch someone or someone. Our anger wants to punish. Our anger wants control. God's anger is patient and long-suffering because he desires to see everybody come to repentance. The scriptures say in the Old Testament, God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So that in God's anger to a perverted world that has messed up his righteousness in so many different ways. He is angry, but he's hopeful. He is in love, giving as many opportunities for people to repent of all of that, 
so his wrath can be satisfied. His holiness can be satisfied. First, or Second Peter chapter 3 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Godly anger has the highest good for the other person in his heart and in his mind. So if I have a holy anger, I'm not after retribution, I'm not after revenge, I'm after that person's heart to repent of it so that they can be saved, so that they can know God. It has a high and lofty goal. Yes, I'm angry at where they are and what they've done, but in my heart I so much want to see them come to know the Lord. That is a contrasting kind of anger. Let's talk about the 99.9% of us, though, that don't experience that kind of righteous indignation. Or if we do, it gets laced with other things. And look at the dark hole of unforgiveness. And what's interesting about this dark hole, it it's dark when you're in it, but you often don't know how dark it is. You see, when you're in it, you justify yourself. You see some righteousness in it. Because that person did it, they deserve my anger and my desire to see them burn. But what happens is you kind of, in your own heart and mind, just kind of let it, let it go along. You don't do much with it. But on the other hand, have you ever watched and looked at a person who is in the gall of bitterness and anger and hatred and you're around them and you listen to them? You can see how dark it is. You can see what their unforgiveness is doing to them. That grudge that they're holding on. You can see how it's permeated and it's controlled so much of their life. And you're like, no, they really need to forgive. They really need to, to get rid of this cancer of anger and bitterness. Because now they're angry at everybody. They're angry at the world. They're angry at life. Because what happens is as anger is not dealt with. It becomes my perspective for everything. I become mad and, and nothing is good any longer. The dark hole of unforgiveness is a me-centered kind of anger. So we become angry when our pride is slighted, a, a minor inconvenience. Uh, we become self-righteously angry like the older brother in the prodigal son story. Uh, we become angry like Jonah over a few inconveniences and the death of a plant. And we become uncaring about 120,000 people's eternal destiny. You see, it, it messes up our perspective of values and what's important and puts our feelings at the, at the height of everything. And all that matters is seeing that person experience pain. And I want to be the one to do it. I want to be the executor for that. Anger is dangerous. It's a fruit of a very deadly mindset. As we think of it, we think of holding a grudge. And this can be small, this can be huge. But a grudge is to have and maintain a feeling of anger, bitterness, or resentment towards someone or something, if you're made of the whole world, uh, for what they did. Especially a wrong that they committed against you or someone you love or you think they've committed against you. You ever got mad at somebody because you didn't have a whole story? And you think, oh, 
When I see them, ah, you got just this part of the story, and you think they've done this. And then when you get the whole story, you're like, oh. And sometimes we don't even want to give up the anger. We still want to be mad. And we realize that our anger was unfounded, but we're too prideful to back up and say, you know what, I'm really sorry. I prejudged. I jumped the gun. No, we'll just find another reason to say, well, maybe I shouldn't be angry about this, but you also did this. You see, we're just like that. We, we want to be angry when we're slighted or we think we have been slighted. To hold and maintain a grudge. When, no, when we hold on to grudges and resentment, it's like one has said, drinking poison and expecting the other person to get sick. That somehow this feeling of anger is going to accomplish something good in them and I'll be pleased with it when all along it really kills our own heart and destroys us from the inside. So we want to ask the question as we begin to get to the place of how do you, how do you deal with this? How do you get this anger under control? It is, do I even have to? Is it possible just to maintain a grudge, let it simmer, not deal with it, just let it be there, and walk with the Lord, and have a vibrant Christian life, and expect it to be okay, as if it's this isolated problem or issue. The scriptures tell us, strive for peace with everyone. Hate ones with everyone, don't you? That's relationships. And for the holiness, these are God's commands, without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. You can't let broken relationships exist on an ongoing basis when it's in your power to do something about it. You can't ignore the commands of God and just say, I can disobey Him and still be okay in my life. You can't see God when those things are part of your life and a problem. In fact, that root of bitterness that, that comes inside takes you, strangles you, and it says, causes trouble, and by it, many become divided. See, angry unforgiveness is not something that just sucks your life away. It defiles the people around you because of the fruit of what you're doing. So as we talk about the root of bitterness here in Hebrews, it's important that we understand what is a root of bitterness. What is it exactly so I can identify it? Because once you identify it, you can deal with it. So we're going to look back to the Old Testament a little bit and, and let it be the commentary on the New Testament and seeing what Hebrews talks about when it talks about a root of bitterness. Is it bitterness that is the root? Or is it a root that when it grows up has bitterness as the fruit, has other things potentially as the fruit? Verse 18, beware, beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord, our God, to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. 
So as we look at this verse, which Hebrews kind of tips its hat to, it's not like bitterness is the root. There's something else that lets bitterness become a fruit. Let's anger become the fruit. Some people work on anger uh, and, and have all kinds of man-made things to try to do it, and count to 10, and do this or do that. And instead of punching the person, I'm going to go outside and punch a tree. You know, the ways to, to manipulate and try to control it. But this anger and this bitterness really has something else down below that causes the problem. Verse, the next verse kind of exposes what the root of bitterness really is. It's one, one, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, this is the root, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my This will lead to the sweeping away of the moist and dry in other words, it doesn't matter who your life or whether your life is good or not. You will be swept away by this root that the scripture is describing here. And this root, and you can fill it in your note, the big word is presumptuousness. Presumptuousness. And if that's hard to spell, you can Google it real quick on the time. The root is being presumptuous. It's a belief that I can disregard God's commands or live with broken relationships and still be an effective member of his family. It won't matter between God and I if I have this anger and, and this broken relationship. I can just let it be that way, and it'll be fine. It's the presumptuous spirit that's at the bottom that isn't willing to deal with sin, bitterness, anger, or whatever it might be. I kind of liken it to you're sitting at home watching your favorite show, and you've already gotten the controller, and you don't have to get up and walk across the room to get it. So you're really happy. And you've got your beverage with you. And you're like, ah, it's my time. I'm just going to watch TV. And all of a sudden, a drip falls on your head. And then another drip. And another drip. And somebody says to you, I think our roof is leaking. And you say, no, it's not. It's just condensation. And as time goes on, the puddle starts to get bigger. And you look at it, and as with many other home repairs, you'll say, it'll be all right. I'll get to it. I'll take care of it later. And you say, I know how to solve this. I'm just going to sit over here. And then I won't have to worry about it. And the drip, drip, drip keeps coming. And eventually somebody at your house says, you know, you really need to deal with that. I know, let's get a bucket. And you put the bucket underneath. And it begins to fill. And you realize, you know, I don't even like the sound. Just turn the TV a little louder. Get the amusement going more. Because that doesn't really matter. Presumptuously, you think, I don't have to fix it. And I will be fine. And then the day comes when the drywall clump falls out and smashes onto the floor. And you're like, oh my goodness, look at that. There's a hole. Get a tarp. Cover it. Hide it. Because I will be fine if I don't fix that. Eventually, the rafters and the whole house begin to have the effects of what was at one time 
a small little drip, a small little leak. I will tell you, based on God's word, sin that is left to fester. For you to just ignore or accept as part of your personality, hey, I'm just an angry person. I'm just an unforgiving person. It's the dripping. It starts small, a little anger that's not dealt with, and you just let it fester, and you just let it sit in your heart. And you may be the only person that knows of this. It's relationships. It's God's command. You can't ignore any of it, because the drywall will fall on you. You will not be able to tarp it and cover it. The day will come where it has so infested your life, the whole home will crumble around you because of this kind of sin. In this angry unforgiveness, as it festers, it eats us up on the inside and affects those around us. To presumptuously let unforgiving anger go undealt with is a death sentence for yourself and for those around you that it touches. Seeking God's forgiveness requires a conscious decision to enter into the battle to believe God's word as the thing that can help me combat, combat this unforgiveness, this bitterness, or anger that I have. And one of the first things that we have to do is realize why we're angry. And you say, that's easy. Powerful. <coughs> they make me so angry. God's word says something very different. James chapter 4 says, what causes quarrels, anger, causes fights among us? Is it not this? And you expect to say, hear God say, that other guy, that unrighteous person that's done this against you, that is the cause. God says, if your passions at war within you. See, when I'm angered and consumed by unforgiveness, there isn't anyone else that I can blame. I have to own it. I have to acknowledge that this is in my life because I am at war with that person in my passions and in my heart. I have declared war with them, and I don't feel like giving it up. I don't want to go reconcile. How many of you like confrontation? It's not like confrontation is fun. I mean, a lot of relationships never get, get fixed because somebody's like, oh, it's going to be uncomfortable. I'm not going to like doing it. Nobody likes doing it. But to get rid of a cancer, it requires surgery. And I don't know anybody that has ever had a surgery that says, that didn't hurt. That's no big deal. It is painful. It is uncomfortable. But the consequences of letting it go presumptuously lead us into a dark, dark hole that we can't get out of. And I want to suggest, I'm going to give you four things in closing that will help us begin to own the anger and the unforgiveness and be able to start seeing progress in extending forgiveness and letting it stay out there and not taking the hatchet up again. Battling unbelief by believing God's word. The first one is believe and commit to the doctor's orders. I know some of you are very stubborn people. And the doctor could tell you something, and if you like it, you'll do it. If you don't like it, yeah, that's fine. That's not anything. That lady doesn't know anything. Whatever it might be, the doctor's orders. Jesus is 
the great physician. You have to be committed to the word of God and that he does happen to know what he's talking about in human relationships because he made us. So if he has a certain path for us to follow, we need to be committed to doing what the word of God says. If you're not there, everything else that I'm going to say after this doesn't really matter. You need to take pains to get it into your head and heart. Determine that you will not ignore a broken relationship. Determine that you will not let a known sin, violation of God's commands, rule the day while you presumptuously think, that's fine. That's okay. I can play here and do this, and God still loves me, and I'm a vibrant part of his family, and I have a good relationship. It doesn't work that way. Back Colossians chapter 3 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. God gives a pretty good list. These are the leaks in the roof. These are the things you have to listen to my instructions and be committed to. You can't just let them sit there. Because when you do, you will never know the joy of God. And your Christian life will dry up and you say, I don't get it. Why is it working for other people and not for me? I can tell you, there's a leak. And it's dripping. And you're not doing anything about it. God desires to have those things put away from us. So once that determination is made to own it and deal with it, is to stay captivated by your own forgiveness. Constantly go back to the cross. Realize how big of a sinner you are. Realize the chasm between God Almighty and you, and little old you went against him. The sin that you committed was the violation of the goodness of the creator of the universe, who if he stopped giving you breath for one second, you would be gone. Your violation against him, it's like this, but he forgives. So in turn, when you forgive others who are on the same plane, it's not as grievous. It's another person like you that has sinned against you, not like what you've done against God. So as you live and constantly go to the cross, constantly in humility, are amazed by grace. <laughs> How did you forgive me? Why would you forgive me? I have violated the, the ordinances and the commands of the king of the universe. The kings usually just punish people. But this king... King one of us took your place. Kings don't do that. Kings expect judgment. They judge people. They punish people. This king said, no, I'm going to take your place. After you have violated my goodness, I will send my son in your place as your substitute. And, and when I'm enamored by that, I'm looking over here at the forgiveness I need to extend. Not as big as I thought it would be. It's not as grievous as I thought it would be because I'm not elevating myself to kingship where I think I'm some kind of God and you're down here and I'm 
Father will not forgive you. How dare I forgive you? You have risen yourself up against me. Now, I'm not trying to minimize whatever someone may have done. And the degree of grievousness of what they're doing, what I'm doing is magnifying the grace of God and saying that His goodness and forgiveness is of such a magnitude that it equips me to be able to do anything or forgive anybody in the human realm, even though it has hurt my soul to the very foundations. God can give us that ability to forgive. Ephesians 4 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all, and this is interesting, bitterness and wrath, how do we grieve God? By letting bitterness and wrath take a hold of us. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Oh my goodness, there's the Enamored by the cross, captivated by your own forgiveness, that you cherish every single day being forgiven by God. And I can't tell you how many believers, once they've gotten saved and they've been saved for a while, they lose the awe. They lose the wonder. Oh, I'm forgiven. Cool. Something nice he did. Really happy about that. I know I get to go to heaven. And it's almost like they just check something off. Okay, eternal destiny, I got one. But they're not captivated by it. They're not in awe of it. It doesn't control what they do as far as how other people are. If you can go on holding a grudge, if you, you can go on holding a grudge if your faith simply means that you're off the hook for eternity. But if your faith means standing in awe of being forgiven by God, then you can't go on holding a grudge because you've fallen in love with mercy. It is your life. So you battle bitter unforgiveness by cultivating a faith that stands in awe of God's forgiveness. Thirdly, believe that God's justice will prevail. Believe that God's justice will prevail. Every human was created in the image of God. It is marred. It is messed up. And you probably can think of people that you look at them and you say, I see no image of God. But the vestiges are there. The, the roots of it are there. That is why we are such a people who complain about things being unfair. That's not fair. That's not regret. I don't care if you're a Christian or an atheist. When something happens that's not fair, we become indignant. Because the unfairness has in some ways exalted itself against that image of God that's inside of us. And, and we realize that we were made for a certain kind of dignity. We were created by, with, with worth and value by God. So therefore, when someone wrongs me, they have violated that vestige of the image of God that lies in me. That's why we care about things being fair. If we were just here by time plus chance, that wouldn't be an issue. There'd be nothing in my heart that would be violated because there's no image. I'm just timeless chance. But if there is a God and he has put his image on us, then when something's not fair, it's a big deal. So inherent in its anger is the belief that punishment is needed for the wrongdoer. It has to have it. It needs to take place. So bitterness chooses you, and, and, and my rightness and their wrongness become all that you see. 
They are wrong. I am right. They are wrong. I am right. And the more you rehearse it, the angrier you get, and you just shake your fist at them, and you will not forgive them. God will bring justice. Romans 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. That means mentally too. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. God is not sharing. I will repay, says the Lord. And when the text says he will repay all wrongs, it means in perfect measure. It means with pure justice. It means with full remembrance like nothing, nobody gets away with anything. It will be with the righteous anger and in righteous judgment. And the question is, if I stay bitter and angry at somebody, is it because I don't trust that he will exact justice? I need to do it more. I need to help him. If I really choose to believe God will bring perfect justice to this world, and it doesn't happen in the timetable that I should think of, is it then my job just to be angry and bitter and wish for all kinds of bad and evil to happen to that person? Psalm 37, 5 through 8. If you're an angry person this morning and you want to see horrible things happen to that other person, trust in God's justice. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will act. He will bring you forth your righteousness as the light, and your justice as the new day. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It only tends to evil. God, justice will prevail. If I believe it and decide to plant myself into that, then anger doesn't need to be, then vengeful unforgivingness doesn't need to be there because I'm not the one that's going to exact revenge. God brings justice. No evil deed will go unpunished, and he will do it with perfection. He will do it with all of the um, perfections that are God. All of those things he will exact it. I do it. The anger of man does not make the righteousness of does not work the righteousness of God. First Peter 2.23, when he was revived, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. If you've been sinned against grievously or someone that you love has been, entrust yourself to adjust the justice of God. Realizing it is his thing. Your, your job is to exact love, to give forgiveness. Realizing he will execute judgment. And then finally, number four, believe in God's promise to turn it for good. Often in the midst of anger, cry of the heart. Why is this happening to me? Why isn't this happening? Because I don't like that. <laughs> let, let it happen to them. Why does it seem that it happens more often to me when I look at them and it just seems like it's so good for them? Realizing that in every trial that could bring anger to your heart, God is up to something. It isn't just happening arbitrarily. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7. In this rejoice, though now for a little while, think a little while, 
if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Those trials are the things that make us angry or give us opportunity to be angry. And we choose the anger. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's the good? I know in Romans 8 it talks about all things working together for good. We don't know what that good is all the time. God tells you what the good is right here. These trials that have come into your life are refining you. They're making you go back to the cross. They're making you dig into the grace of God to deal with it in a God-honoring kind of way. And when you do that, that process is a refining process. And it's more valuable than gold. If you believe that, then you know this situation is at work for eternal purpose. And even in the evilness of it, potentially, God is saying, as you interact with my grace, and you interact with what's happening, I am refining you, purifying your heart, so that you can be a conduit of love, and not just one that wants to exact revenge, anger, or get something your way. You see, for some of us, anger is never abated until we're satisfied. The message of the cross, God's been satisfied. He is the one who will enact justice. God allows trials that could make us very angry. If they didn't, they wouldn't be trials. But the reason he does do is to refine our faith the way gold is refined by fire. You believe that. If you don't believe it and you don't value it, you will presumptuously decide to stay mad, to stay angry, and to not fix the relationship. My challenge this morning, if somebody's come up in your mind that you need to deal with, deal with it. If it's not somebody you can go to for whatever reason, a forgiving spirit goes a long way. A spirit that says, Lord, I was so wrong what they did. I'm going to turn them over to your justice. I'm going to look at my own forgiveness and relish that. I'm going to look at that and see, God, that, that you are the wise doctor. You are the doctor who is all loving and your orders are good and right. And even in the hurt of it, I will be confident that you are working for good to purify my faith that when I see you, my heart has been changed. I have been set free. There isn't anything greater than if you've had a heart that has been mired by sin to come to Jesus Christ and be forgiven and know what's that like. But the second greatest thing is to release your anger and bitterness and resentment towards somebody else and experience your salvation free all over again. Because when you don't, you have just put yourself in prison. Let all anger and wrath be put away from you. With all the sincerity and love of God, he has given you the tools in Scripture to be able to do what he has asked. Don't let bitterness, anger, hatred, the desire for revenge, broken relationships, commands of God, unobeyed, Father, help us to see you as the great, wonderful God that you are. And that in all things, you know best. And not only do you give us the prescription or the things that we're supposed to do, you give the power. 
You give the, not just the example of what's to be done, you give the power to extend your grace to other people. Father, may we be people who do that earnestly, without hesitation. Don't let the law keep us from moving. Jesus' name.